0: Big thank you to Rainbow Grocery, our favorite grocery store here in the San Francisco Bay Area, for being our sponsor because a healthy body is a sexy body. Okay, you modern lovers, we have a different kind of show today. Instead of having a special guest, I'm going to be your guest and I'm going to be talking about moms leading double lives. And this is a sneak preview of the Dr. Oz show that's going to be airing March 29th. That's this coming Thursday. And whether you see this show when it airs or whether you see it when it's archived, you're going to find it really interesting because this show is tackling, in an oblique way, two of the most important issues of our times. And those issues have been captured in hashtag MeToo Hashtag Time's Up. And that is all about the state of women. The state of women in the U.S., the state of women around the world. So let me tell you a little bit about the two brave women who went on national TV and they will be telling their story. You'll get to see all of this on the show, but this is a little sneak preview. And then I welcome your questions. You can call in live 347 989 0776 and talk to me and ask your questions right now. So take a deep breath and let's go on a little journey. Imagine that you're a high school girl, you're about 16 years old, and you have limited financial circumstances and you longed to have the cute clothes that some of the other girls have. You wish that you could go shopping and come back with lots of fun things that really were current and fashionable and you notice all of a sudden that you have a friend whose family doesn't have any more money than you do. You're living up in... You're growing up in a single family home and your friend is too and all of a sudden she's... And ah, hold your breath because not only that, she is now driving to school in a really cute car. How did this happen? So you are asking your friend to tell you what's her secret. What is she doing? And finally, she gets in and she tells you. She says, well, I have a new job. And... Your friend says, I'll introduce you to my boss. Maybe my boss can help you get a job too and help you make money like I am. And you'll have cute clothes and you'll be able to drive a car. Now, you know where I'm headed. You know where I'm headed. Her friend's boss was a pimp. And soon this young girl had been recruited, coerced, cajoled, bought into being in the sex industry. She didn't have any other means in her family to have the things that she longed for. And she wanted to feel special. She wanted to feel pretty. She wanted to feel important. She wanted to feel she mattered. And, of course, no one was better at that than her, quote, boss. You're my princess. You're my girl. You're my this. You're my that. On and on and on. So here we have a very young girl who goes through what we call early, early sexual experience. And in other words, really what happened is this was sexual abuse, and she ends up believing because, you know, when you start training someone to do something when they're very young, And 16, 17 is way before the brain is finished. You all know the brain isn't finished growing until you're 25 or 26 years old. So the brain is taking on all these patterns at an accelerated rate. And she starts believing that her only way to make money, her only way to have worth, her only way to matter in the world is through her sexuality. So we fast forward now. Years later, she's a mom. And she believes the only way to provide for herself and her children is, you've guessed it, teething what she learned as a teenager. No other work pays as well. No other work takes as little of her time. It's just an evening here and an evening there. And she wants to hide all of this from her children and her family. So I want you to be aware that this is why hashtag MeToo, women who have suffered sexual abuse, sexual assault, who have gone through any kind of experience where they were compromised because of their sexuality, leads to lifelong consequences, Lifelong consequences. One of them is mom leading a double life. And you'll see on the show with Dr. Oz a number of women who were caught in this pattern and who literally paid with their lives because of this pattern being started in their lives at an early age. So when we get toward the end of the show, we're going to talk about how women can recover from this early sexual I always, I can't, quite, I can't quite find the right word because it encompasses part of me wants to say molestation, part of me wants to say abuse, part of me wants to say rape, part of me wants to say absolute brainwashing. There's so many different words that describe this experience when a woman is young and unable to do her best decision making and thinking. That is usually when predators strike. So moving on, the second story that was tackled in the show is about a woman who, here we go again, teenage girl has a boyfriend who recruits her to, again, work in the sex trade. She goes from there to helping him run his drug business and ends up running her own drug business. And all of these kinds of activities require one thing, and this is the thing that is most difficult and deadly to the psyche, to the opportunities for women who end up going down a path like this. And I have no judgment, no blame, no uh, castigation for a woman who gets caught in a cycle of criminal behavior because of early sexualization, early manipulation, all these things these young women went through. But what makes it hard is they end up isolated. They have to keep what they're doing a secret. Their families don't know. Their friends, if they have any, don't know. Or the friends are in the industry also. So how do you find your way out if you can't tell anyone, if you can't be honest with anyone for fear that you'll end up in jail or worse? How do you make a life for yourself? So I want you to just look at the markers that lead to moms leading double lives. Number one, early manipulation, exploitation, That is sexual in nature, abuse of any kind, programs a young woman, teenage girl's brain that this is her only worth in life. This is the only thing she's got that's of value, and she has to somehow trade it to make her way in the world. Number two, it leads to a pattern. And the behavior pattern is I'm at the mercy of others and I don't have the right to be the master of my own ship. I have to trade my quote product for money and others will buy it, but I'm putting my life and my well being at risk. So risky behavior, risk taking always, always leads to an adrenaline rush. And we want to look at the risk taking, risky behavior. Number two, The adrenaline rush, number three. The money, number four. And number five, isolation. So it's very hard to get help, very hard to break the cycle when the isolation is part of it. So having said that, we have our first question. You can either write in a question or call. Let me just take a look here. This question is, what's the connection between sexual assault committing crimes for women? Huh. Okay. So the question came in just before I finished that, and I think that I made the case pretty clear that women who are assaulted lose that sense that they're the master of their own body, never mind their own lives. It changes their self-esteem. Very few women come out of sexual assault saying, gee, I'm a more valuable person. Everybody says, I'm less valuable. Or the only thing I have that's of value is my body or my sexuality, and it's only valuable if I can sell it. So women are more prone to commit other crimes because they've already had that adrenaline rush. They've already been exposed to risky behaviors. They're already exposed to people but make them into objects and commodities. So thank you for your question. That's from JT. That's a good question because let me give you a couple of stats. A huge percentage, and the numbers vary, the numbers vary, from 60 to 90% of women who are incarcerated are there because of sexual abuse or assault starting their career of crime. And they continue that career of crime. So they have suffered sexual assault somewhere along the way, anywhere from 60 to 90% of the time. And a huge percentage of those women who end up in prison are also mothers. So we have approximately 2 million children in the United States whose mothers are behind bars. Now, we start talking about the breakdown of nurturing, consistency in a child's life. I think you can already see why we have intergenerational patterns of moms who are incarcerated or moms exposed to sexual assault or moms leading double lives whose children grow up and follow suit. And again, we'll spend the last part of the program working on healing. So second question that came in is, why do women with children risk everything with criminal behavior? I think that's, again, a really good question. And the why is so tied, excuse me, so tied to the very, very sad fact that if a woman doesn't value herself, doesn't feel she has options, doesn't feel there's anybody there to help her, then as a mother, she's more willing to take risks. She's more likely unconsciously to devalue her child as well. Now, you'll hear the women on this show say how important their children are, how much they love them, how much they do anything for them, but they're not making the critical connection. The critical connection is gee, if I'm doing something criminal, I end up in prison, then my child is without a mother. I'm really not benefiting my child. If I put myself at risk, my child is at risk. And that connection was broken because this woman was herself exploited, this woman was herself put at risk, and she can't quite make that mental leak. I can't risk myself because in the case of one of these women at least, she was the only provider, the only caretaker her child had. So I appreciate the questions. Keep them coming. Keep them coming. And let me talk a little bit about what happens to mothers who do end up in the criminal justice system. They do lose control of their parenting rights. They do lose. I worked for an organization called Group, and this was for moms who'd been convicted of crimes. And most of these women had their children taken from them by the criminal justice system, and they were explicitly instructed that if they didn't follow through with the programs at Group Inc., which was a home for moms who had been convicted. And this home was in lieu of being in prison. So they had either to go to prison, is the only options, or live in the home, follow through with the treatment program there. What were they in treatment for? Well, they're in treatment because they were all addicted to some sort of substance because that's the other great risk. So I went every week to lead groups For the moms who were in group Inc., who were recovering from substance, and they got to see their children once a week, and this was the great, wonderful thing, is that by not being in prison, they got to see their children once a week, and they also were getting treatment for the real problem, the problem being the abuse they had suffered that had led to – the use of substances. And you know that most women who are addicts aren't starting out taking drugs recreationally alone. They're taking them because there's some pain, there's some trauma, usually sexual again, that the women suffer and they end up on drugs or alcohol addiction. And this leads to a life of crime. So one of the things I discovered when I was working there at Group Inc. is that most of these women had also grown up in homes where there had either been addiction or abuse or abandonment by a parent. And one of the women I'll always remember, she had done something in the house, and I don't remember what that was, but when I arrived, she was on the floor on her knees, with the other women yelling at her, because this was what, quote, discipline was, calling her a stupid biatch, you know, ignoramus, you're this, you're that. And I said, what are you doing? And I stopped it. And they looked at me very surprised, and they said, well, this is discipline. You know, she did something she wasn't supposed to do. She broke the rules, so this is how we discipline people. And I sat them all down. I said, Where did you learn that this was a way to treat another human being? To make them feel even worse than they already feel? And the breakthrough this was the, the group for that evening that we had. The breakthrough was this isn't how people heal. We don't make anybody better by making them feel worse, by being punitive. The real healing was teaching this woman that she was valuable, that she was lovable, that all the women in the group were valuable and lovable. And it was through self-love that they could motivate themselves to continue their drug treatment program, their alcohol treatment program. They could continue doing the work they needed to do to get to see their children. So the dynamic of the group shifted from that night forward, because I gave them all exercises, and you'll see some of those exercises as I'm teaching them to the women on Dr. Oz. And if you missed the show that aired February 19th, it's up on the website. It's called "A Psychologist uh, Helps Stop Binge Eating," I think is what the edited segment is called. we am actually teaching the subject on the show, Noni, how to love herself and value herself. And at Group Inc., when I was done with my tenure there, the feedback was, for the first time in my life, I've learned I'm valuable, I'm lovable, and that helps me love my children and lead a better life. So if your question's coming, another one just came in, and it says, shouldn't women still Have to take responsibility for their crimes? Yeah, boy, that is a complicated question because when we start talking about response ability, now listen to the word response ability, it means I have the ability to respond, you have the ability to respond in a different way, in a whole or a positive way to what is going on. And so the whole and positive way to respond to something is, gee, if it's a crime, I won't do it. And if you have been injured in such a way that you don't feel you have value, if you've been assaulted and abused in such a way, all you deserve, then you lost the ability to respond appropriately. Now, I wrote a book called Power Choices, and the very last chapter of the book is about innovation. How do we change the things that need changing in the world? And it's the story of a number of different women who changed things in the world, from the women who marched in Chile who brought down the dictator Pinochet to the moms that marched in North and South Ireland, who came together and said, the war is over, we're done, no other mother's children will be killed, to the judge, the woman judge, who brought the idea of what became known as Red Hook Justice forward. In Red Hook, New York is where it all started. And this judge kept seeing the same people coming through the court over and over, committing the same petty crimes. And finally, that says, why am I seeing you back here again? Didn't we just go through that if you uh, jacked another car or if you uh, were caught again with drugs or if you were in another ruckus fighting that you were going to go to jail? So why are you back here? And what she found out is a number of those people that were recidivating the proverbial door that kept swinging open again and again and again, that revolving door, some of them didn't have jobs, some of them didn't have education, some of them were on drugs and alcohol, and she said, you know what, I'm going to sentence you to drug and alcohol treatment, I'm going to sentence you to go and finish your GED and go to those GED classes, I'm going to sentence you to job training. And guess what? When those people got their crucial need met, whether it was recovery, education, training, or even anger management, then their ability to respond differently was restored. And this is now a huge movement in justice in the United States. And around the world, it had started long before. And that movement was to absolutely put into place a system that restored people's humanity, that gave them true opportunity instead of punishment. So we may punish people, but guess what? That doesn't change their ability to respond. They still don't have an education. They still aren't trained for a job. They still may go back out and start using again. What we need is to solve the problem. And restorative justice solves problems instead of dehumanizing people. So that people, even if they have to do time, will come out of prison or come out of jail able to be restored in society. And it is a much more effective use of our tax dollars to restore people to society, to their families. And especially for moms, I'm a huge advocate of programs like Group Inc., where the mom is kept in the community. It's cheaper to house moms in a house than in a prison requiring guards and all the other expenses. It's cheaper to have people who can go in and do the deep intervention work and help those women to heal and for them to be there to nurture their children so those children don't grow up with the same patterns and repeat the same behavior because they were abandoned because their mothers were put away. So we have to really look at moms differently because the imprint of what a mother does lasts for generations. That's why we have intergenerational cycles in families. So we've looked at the five things that keep women stuck in cycles where they're leading double lives. So now let's take the last part of our program and, again, we can send, keep sending in the questions. What is it that we can do that can change the cycle? Well, I've already talked about red-hook justice, that we have a justice system that restores people, that is more about healing than it is just punishing. Because punishment takes a person off the street for a little while, doesn't solve the problem. Punishment doesn't solve problems. Now, the next thing we need to really look at is prevention. How do we prevent young girls, young women from being sexually exploited? How do we prevent access of criminals to schools? And don't think for one moment that this only happens in disadvantaged communities because that's not true. That's not true. I've been leading trainings. I've been leading groups for parents. I I, um, was the host of a television show on Whittle TV called Parenting by Wade. And the majority of the letters I got about children being addicts came from very, very well-to-do communities where people who sold hard drugs targeted those communities. Why? Because those kids had disposable income. They had allowance money and they would get targeted. One kid would be given the drugs at a party. That kid's job was to spread it to the other kids. Those kids, because their brains are more permeable the younger they are, would get hooked and pretty soon the drug dealers had regular customers. I had calls from very well to do families with children as young as 11 years old, getting strung out on drugs and having to send that child away, girls and boys, to facilities costing $60,000 a year or more. So one of the things we have to look at is prevention. And the only thing that prevents children and helps to restrain children so that they aren't as likely to be exploited by drug dealers, pimps, or sexually assaulted or abused is education that starts early. And especially for girls. No one has the right to touch you here, here, or here. The little girl is taught, not her genitals, not her rectal area, not her breasts. No one has the right to touch me here, here, or here. If anyone does, I need to get help and tell an adult who can help me. Most parents are still afraid to talk to their children about sex. Most parents are still afraid to tell children, hey, you know what? It's very important that you speak up if anybody touches you in the wrong way because this is your body and you have the right to protect your body. One of the simple things is don't make children kiss relatives they don't want to kiss. Just say it's your body. If you don't feel like kissing grandpa, grandma, uncle, whatever right now, that's okay. And teach other relatives they can't coerce children. So education, your body is your own. You have the right to protect it. You have the right to say no because women are not taught to say no. And when people talk about the women caught in hashtag me too, hashtag times up, There's a lot of blaming the victim without recognizing. Boys are educated. It's okay to have a voice and say no. Girls do not get the same education. Girls are taught to be compliant, cooperative, think more about community and other people's feelings, be nurturing. Girls are given dolls. Boys are given trucks. So think about the agency that girls must be taught so that they can be safe. That's how we keep girls out of trouble and keep them from being exploited because they then grow up to be moms who have a hard time teaching their children. So if we really want to transform our system, it's through prevention, not punishment. And if somebody ends up committing a crime, then we have to focus on the restoration. Now, the last thing, the very last thing, is we need to destigmatize women's sexuality. Is it, there's never a person who goes, Oh my God, look at that pimp. Oh, he's disgusting. Oh, and he gets shunned. Well, guess what? Most can go undercover, and nobody's really going to say you're a disgusting human being. Because you've exploited other people because they're men. They have other options. Whereas a woman who's caught in the sex trade is treated like she is the lowest of the low. She's dirty. She's, quote, fallen. I've never heard anyone refer to a man in the sex trade as a fallen man. But I've certainly heard a lot of women called fallen women. We do need to look at the stereotyping, the stigmatizing of women so that when women are truly equal to men, we have a culture that's much healthier because, do I have to say it one more time, and I appreciate so much all of you listening, and I hope you will enjoy the Dr. Oz show because it's a great show talking about moms leading double lives, why and how they got there, how they get out of it, compelling real stories of what happened to these women and how they did get out or one of them we hope will get out. But the key is women do need to be restored to a place of value, honor, and balance because who is going to raise the next generation who is on the front line to take care of the children who will continue these patterns if mom doesn't get some help? So we've got to help women. We've got to help moms because we're actually helping our culture. We're helping our country and we're moving life forward. So I want to close with a quote. I'm sorry. There's a question that came in. I'm sorry. I can't take any more questions, but you know, you can send me your questions via our Facebook page, or tweet them at us, Dr. Brenda Wade, or send it to Dr. Brenda Wade at, um, let's see, hold on, drbrendawade.com or love at docwade.com is our email. I'm happy to answer questions offline. Now here's the final thing I want you to take away. Every one of us, yes, you, is part of the solution This is from Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. You're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And if you are judging women, putting them down because of the struggles they're going through, then somebody said, judge not lest ye be judged. And you know who said it. So let's practice love, restoration, upliftment, understanding compassion, forgiveness. Those are some of the 12 powers of the heart. And let's put our heart into not needing hashtag me too or hashtag time's up because time is up for women to suffer this kind of abuse. I so appreciate you being with us. I want to thank our executive producer, Mr. Legrand Green, our associate producer, Griff Dunning, all you modern lovers, I want you to take away these tools of restoration because even if you're not leading a double life or you're not on the wrong side of the law, we all need restoration. We all need compassion and understanding. Final thing, I can't, I can't leave you without saying this. My hero, Mary McLeod Buffoon said, women deserve to be honored and respected because they can bring forth life and they make life worth living. All right, modern lovers, goodbye.